Et de 1, et de 2, et de 1, 2, 3, et... Vélo va, vélo vole, la voix va ou vélo va, vélo vire, vélo volte, où va la vie, vélo va. Hi Alison. Hi Sarah. We're back. Yeah, yeah, after a long summer break, but um, you're you're not actually back, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I am not. I am, uh, but making a quick guest appearance. Yeah. So you don't completely forget me. I am on sick leave, mm. as I have been for about a month now, after skidding off my bike when I was going into the company car park uh, at the beginning of August. Yeah, ouch, ouch, ouch. Yeah, yeah well, I'm making it sound a bit more dramatic than it really is. Just well. For, for effect. Um, I fractured a collarbone, but to be honest, it was nothing too serious. Oh, that sounds pretty dramatic, mm. but also incapacitating. Yeah, well, because it was the right arm and I'm right-handed, so it's clearly not that good for holding microphones or, or writing. Mm. But anyway, I could not wish for a better replacement. It has to be said, the one and only Jess Phelan. Hi, Jess. Hi, Alison. I'm oh. sorry you're out of action, but I'm very happy to be filling in for you this week. Uh, so I'll leave you guys up to it and I'm looking forward to listening, but uh, don't be too good. You know, I'm terrified about being replaced by the younger generation. <laughs> well, well, we'll have you back on the next show. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> I look forward to it. J'avais chaud, chaud, chaud. J'avais chaud. J'avais chaud, chaud, chaud. J'avais chaud. Yeah, so Jess, our listeners know you. You've been on the show a few times. Um, today, you're in the hosting hot seat, <laughs> literally. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about heat. Yeah. Around half of France was on heatwave alert at the end of August and right into last week, including Paris last weekend. Yeah, and around the world, this was really the hottest summer on record. Yeah. And it was very hot in France, too. But the worst heat wave here was actually 20 years ago in 2003. Yeah. It peaked in August when the average temperature nationwide was around 37 degrees Celsius for eight days straight. Really hot. And that month, nearly 15,000 people in France died from the heat, which is more than any summer since. I, I actually wasn't in France that year, but Sarah, you were. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do remember it being very hot. Um, I actually remember freezing water bottles in the freezer and then laying them out for the cat oh, wow. <laughs> to cool her <laughs> off. Um, but at the time, I really didn't realize how serious it was. Mm. I was young, but also I think the real impact didn't come out until later. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of people didn't realize that the heat could be deadly. And that is exactly why it became such a disaster. Um, I spoke to a historian of public health, Richard C. Keller, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the US. He was in France that summer doing research, and he says people just had no idea at the time how serious the situation was. There were actually three significant heat waves in the summer of 2003. There was one in June, one in July, and then the, the real whopper came in August. In June and July, uh, for the most part, the heat was billed as a kind of an inconvenience. So I recall, for example, when I was in Aix-en-Provence, uh, the front page of La Provence, the you know, local newspaper, uh, would show images of dogs lying on the street, tourists in Paris jumping in the fountains at the Louvre and other places like that. So essentially, you know, oh, this heat is, is really kind of playing havoc with tourism and that sort of thing. In August, of course, uh, this is the traditional vacation period, so that reduced staffing in government agencies and hospitals, which were caught essentially completely off guard. And so what we have is a kind of perfect storm. 
So, yeah, when did the alarm bells start to ring? Well, the people on the front lines were the the first ones to report that something was seriously wrong. So the emergency services, doctors who were seeing all these people showing up with dehydration, heart attacks, kidney failure, all these kind of telltale signs of heat stress. Mm. And at the same time, the health authorities were saying, well, these are all natural causes. We can't say it's because of the heat that people are dying. Um, I want to play you a clip from a doctor called Patrick Pelou. He was the head of the Union of the French Emergency Room Physicians at the time. And he was one of the first whistleblowers of 2003. Here he is speaking to French TV that August. Mais qu'est-ce qu'il fout de la Direction Générale de la Santé Il se moque de qui Le problème, il est bien réel. C'est que nous avons des malades qui sont en train de mourir. Qui... So I think you can hear the frustration in his voice there. He's mm. saying, what does the health department think they're doing? The problem is real. We have sick people here who are dying and who shouldn't be dying. So I guess like it wasn't outside of that being seen as an emergency. Like what was the government doing? What Where was the disconnect? Yeah, that's right. It just, it wasn't seen as something that people needed to be on the lookout for. Mm. There was just no system in place. I mean, the weather service, of course, was measuring the temperature. The health service was kind of keeping an eye on statistics. But there was a kind of failure to join the dots mm. between those things. Um, and even if they had kind of figured out the warning signs, okay, there's more people going to hospital, there are more deaths, no one would have known what to do about it anyway, because there was an emergency plan for cold weather, but not for hot weather. Right. So everyone was really just caught on the back foot. And by the time they tried to do something about it, it was already too late. Yeah, I mean, a huge number of people died in the end. Yeah, the official count was 14,802 heat-related deaths in the first three weeks of August alone. Right, just three weeks. And this was known as the summer when all the old people died. I mean, mm. this is how I remember it. I think most of those deaths were elderly people, right? Yeah, that's right. So around 80 82% were aged 75 or older. That's roughly um, 12,000 out of the 15,000 total. And the highest mortality rate was in elderly women. Um, also, the death rate was especially high in Paris, which is very densely populated. And it just wasn't used to getting such hot weather. Yeah. And, and I remember also the thing that really hit everyone was that many of these people died at home alone and then were only found afterwards, their bodies. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So the, the largest number of people actually died in retirement homes or nursing homes. Uh, but what everybody remembers is the people living alone, yeah. the people in small apartments who didn't have the resources or maybe the mobility to, to leave the city on holiday or, or even get out of their flats and no one was checking in on them. Um, so as you mentioned, there are some really terrible stories about people noticing a smell or bugs coming from their neighbor's apartment yeah. and, and finding the body that way yeah, weeks really, later. More like really gruesome. Yeah, just mm. terrible. Um and uh, Richard Keller, the historian, he wrote a book about Les Oubliés de la Canicule, the forgotten victims of the heat wave. This was around 60 people in Paris whose bodies were never claimed, even after their deaths. Um, and he says that, that those kind of stories prompted a lot of soul searching in France. There was lots of uh, reckoning in the press about this. How can the birthplace of humanitarianism, how can the, the nation that claims to have been the, the originator of the notion of human rights and dignity um, be in such a place that people could be in, in a condition where they could die in such misery, completely alone, completely isolated? 
Yeah, and all this really pushed people into action. Yeah. So right away, the government ordered a parliamentary inquiry, which was just a catalogue of institutional failures. Um, they talked about the lack of a monitoring system, um, understaffing in hospitals and retirement homes. Um, a lot of decision makers were actually absent over the summer of right. the August holidays. On holiday, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was just poor information sharing across the board between these various services. Mm. Um, so by the very next summer, 2004, France had its first national heat wave plan in place, which kind of aimed to address some of these things. Mm. So it introduced a warning system that automatically puts each department of France on alert from June to September. And meteorologists and public health experts are assessing the risks daily during that period and advising local authorities. So they use that information to decide on the alert level. So green is kind of normal summer weather. Yellow um, is an alert for short hot spells, Orange is for a heat wave and red is for a really severe heat wave. And for each of those different levels of alert, every town council knows exactly what it's going to do during that period. So, for example, Paris issued an orange heat wave alert last weekend. That's the second highest. And that meant that the mayor's office in each district of the city opened up a designated cool space to the public. Public swimming pools extended their opening hours. Parks stayed open until midnight. The city sent people out to hand out water bottles in the street. There's a whole kind of raft of actions that, that kick in as soon as one of these alerts is declared. Yeah. And then what about measures specifically for older people? Because that was an issue. Right. Yeah. One of the main things that came directly out of 2003 is that every local council in France now keeps a register of people over 65 or who have disabilities that might make them especially vulnerable and who live at home um, and the city has someone call them when it gets hot to check if they need help. Also, retirement homes um, have to have at least one air-conditioned common room where residents can go to cool off. <laughs> Our American listeners are probably horrified <laughs> hearing this. Only one room. <laughs> right. Yeah. AC just really isn't as yeah, common yeah. here as it is in other parts of the world. Um, so, so now elderly people are guaranteed at least one place. One cool room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, in old people's homes, they have to have uh, a heat emergency plan in place, including how they're going to bring on extra staff if they need them during a heat wave. Yeah, so it seems like all this um, has worked, right? I don't think France has had another disaster like 2003, at least in terms of heat. Yeah, that's right. So over the past decade, roughly 3,500 people died per year from the heat. So that's an average. So some years more, some years less. Mm, so, But it's much less than 2003. Yeah, for sure. France has certainly got better at preventing some deaths from heat waves, especially among older people. But of course, the problem is that climate change is creating more frequent heat waves, more intense heat waves, and over a longer period. So this most recent one was in September. Ten years ago, that wasn't even considered the danger season. Yeah, September is fall. We yeah. don't have heat waves. Yeah. <laughs> now we do. So what France is beginning to talk about now is structural adaptation to heat. So that means not just an emergency response, but long-term measures. Um, and this is what Richard Keller had to say. This is the public health historian who studied the 2003 heat wave, and he's continued to follow the issue ever since. I think the, the biggest thing that cities like Paris have done, if these are broad policies of climate mitigation, uh, policies of traffic reduction, uh, carbon consumption reduction, uh, green roofs, solar installations, these kinds of things. They're absolutely critical, but they're going to have slow effects 
um, this is something that's not going to change the picture dramatically overnight. Um, in the meantime, of course, heat waves are still deadly. That's right. Mm. Three and a half thousand deaths a summer is still a lot of deaths, yeah. especially when you consider that heat deaths are, for the most part, preventable deaths. Um, we don't know the death toll from this summer yet, but the French Public Health Institute has reported at least 120 heat deaths since July, and that's not including the latest heat wave at the start of this month. So we know that the final figure will be quite a lot higher. So Jess, did you travel anywhere by train this summer? I took some local trains and also my very favorite train, the Eurostar. Ah, the Eurostar, the high-speed train that goes under the English Channel. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the cousin to the TGV, which is part of life in France these days. It can get you from Paris to Marseille in less than four hours. You can cross the country and before lunch. Wow. Um, but 40 years ago, this was a novelty. The very first line was inaugurated on September 22nd, 1981, running from Paris to Lyon. It was an orange and white striped train nicknamed Patrick. <laughs> and on board, it was carrying recently elected President François Mitterrand and a bunch of journalists. Oh, they must have been pretty confident in it to put the president on board. I mean, imagine journalists a bit more expendable, but you don't want to put the head <laughs> of state on something you don't think will work. It's true. It's true. But lots of tests went into it. It took two Two hours, 40 minutes to get to Lyon from Paris with a top speed of 260 kilometers an hour. Previously, that trip took four hours. And that first trip only had half the tracks ready for the high-speed train. A couple of years later, that trip was reduced to two hours. And that's about how long it takes today, I believe. Mm -hmm. So how did the first trip go? Well, there were a few glitches. Apparently, stormy weather cut the electricity. The driver had to unexpectedly put on the brakes at some point. Then the train had trouble sticking to the rails and could barely get to 90 kilometers an hour. Wasn't no. looking good. But it did finally get up to top speed as expected and everything went as planned. Hmm. And the first commercial trip um, with, you know, the public on board ran a few days later on September 27th, 1981. Hmm. So Japan already had its bullet trains by then, but high-speed trains weren't common in Europe at the time. Not at all, not at all. At the time, this was the only high-speed rail line in Europe. And it wasn't a given that high-speed rail would be developed here in France. By the end of the 60s, um, French train lines were falling apart. Car travel was on the rise, air travel. Mm. And so to stay relevant, um, rail really had to reinvent itself and come up with something completely different. And there were early experiments with speed. It showed what could be possible. Um, one train hit 331 kilometers an hour in 1955, hmm. so a ways before. But there was a lot of work to be done to do that consistently and safety. Um, right. Lots of experimentation and work throughout the 1970s supported by the French government. Hmm. I do know that around the same time, France was also working on building a hover train <laughs> right. called the Aero train. Um, I guess in the end, that didn't work out mm -hmm. and they went with the TGV instead. Um, the, the TGV runs on electricity. So was that always the plan? Yeah, well, so work was initially on a diesel train, a high-speed diesel train, a, a turbo train. TGV actually originally stood for high-speed or grande vitesse turbo train. But uh, the 1973 oil crisis pushed up the cost of fuel and the government swapped and uh, started supporting an all-electric high-speed train. Hmm. After the first trip in 1981, there were more lines built, uh, connecting high-speed lines to regular train lines, and it really began reducing travel times everywhere in France. 
And just how fast are we talking? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the the TGV has the world speed record, doesn't it? It does. It does. So it hit a first record in February 1981, a few months before its inaugural trip. Um, engineers were trying to get to the 100 meters per second mark. Oh that's 360 kilometers wow. per hour. I know it, when you put it per second, it's like, whoa, that's, that's really fast. <laughs> and it doesn't feel like that when you're no, on it. No, it really doesn't. That's another feat of their engineering. Mm. So at that point, it got to 380. That was a first wow. record. Um, today, the TGV... TGV does hold the world speed record for commercial train. Hmm. It got to 574.8 kilometers an hour on April 3rd, 2007. Hmm. Of course, that's test speeds. You're not going right. to get in a train going that fast. <laughs> the fastest it goes with passengers is 320 kilometers an hour. So pretty fast. So pretty fast. Um, and by the way, Patrick, you know, that first mm-hmm. train retired in 2020. Uh, they repainted it orange and white <laughs> for a final trip through France to say goodbye. And uh, it had traveled 14 million kilometers in 40 years. Être à moins de 15 minutes d'un cours de yoga, du dentiste, de la garderie sans voiture, plus d'air frais, plus d'espace pour marcher, pour pédaler, pour jouer. Tout le monde se le souhaite. Vraiment. Et c'est possible grâce au concept de la ville des 15 minutes. So, 15 minutes from your yoga class, 15 minutes from your dentist. That was an advertisement in, from Canada, French-speaking Canada, about a 15-minute city concept. Mm. Um, Jess, have you ever heard of this 15-minute city? Yeah, I have. So, I've heard about it in a different context. Mm. It, it came up during protests in England earlier this year. Yeah. Um, the city of Oxford limited car access to the, to the city centre. And I had a lot of people talking about the 15-minute city as part of that. Yeah, and there was lots of protests against it. But but at its base, this is an urban planning theory. It was actually introduced by Carlos Moreno, who's a sociologist who teaches here in Paris. And yeah, the idea is to rethink how cities are organized. So you don't have separate business and shopping districts. Instead, mm-hmm. you have everything like your work, your leisure, your medical services, all that within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from your house. The idea, of course, is to reduce your dependence on cars, cut down commutes to work, and pretty much make city life more bearable. Hmm. Well, I mean, personally, that sounds pretty appealing to me. But um, I I know that the protesters against it see this idea of the 15-minute city as a way of keeping people confined, locked into their neighborhoods and not allowed to move around more freely. Yeah, yeah. And and, and this is really coming out of the worldview of these people who already see the world as being run by the group of elites bent on controlling everyone. I mean, we're entering here into the world of QAnon, conspiracy Mm, theorists. It really is this whole conspiracy theory world. Um, Some proponents then of all that have focused on this 15-minute city idea as a sinister plot, you know, to create open-air jails, that kind of thing, and then taking away people's cars. Well, I mean, it does sound like limiting cars is part of the idea. Absolutely, absolutely. But not taking them away. And actually, it is more about reducing just the need for them. And then, of course, limiting carbon emissions as a result. So Moreno has this idea of the 15-minute city, but also the 30-minute territory, as he's called it, outside of more dense urban areas. You know, services should be within a 30-minute drive from home. So again, we're not like limiting here. It's just encouraging. Mm, This is the way he sees it. Boom. I spoke to him a few years ago when he was advising the Paris mayor and Hidalgo on her re-election campaign. And she's actually taken up a lot of these ideas for Paris's city planning. And when he talks about it, you can hear he gets very excited, but he's really wonky. I mean, just uses lots <laughs> of jargon. 
Today, the city of Paris has bioclimate urbanism local plan for the next decade, at least, based on polycentricity, multi-uses, social uh, mixity, to foster capability to reduce the presence of individual cars and to uh, continue to transform this city for being more resilient in face with climate change. So yeah, you can hear that bioclimate urbanism and polycentricity, right. all of these words. I'm not sure I understand what Yeah, all of but really it's about making things closer and rethinking where people live and work. Mm-hmm. Um, he really does sound like the urban planner that he is. But I was interested to hear about what it was like for this academic turned political consultant to suddenly find himself embroiled in the world of conspiracy theories. This was a violent campaign. I received not only injuries, but real death threat. But at the same time, this is a darker sign of times. A lot of my uh, climate scientist colleagues have today uh, the, the target of this question is What was the reaction like? I mean, and how have you dealt with it? Is the idea, obviously for you, you said it's insane. You're, you're sort of drawn into this world. Is part of it just ignoring it or do you have to, I mean, it is part of the reality of the world. Do you engage with it? Do you try to respond? We can have another choice of that to deploy in our best pedagogical effort or explaining that we have living today in a turning point. This is a crucial period for humanity. Of course, it is impossible to uh, consider that the uh, leaders of constituency mongers would change uh, their attitude. However, we have a lot of people under these uh, global anxieties, and we need to explain that as a scientist, we have the possibility to explore another future for changing our habits. What is the problem? The problem is that the citizen dwellers in cities consider that the former lifestyle with the individual car in reality are the normal world. In fact, we need to explain that this period or one century from the emergence of cars until now it was an abnormal period. One of the things, though, that it's it's interesting to touch on, though, obviously, you know, you're talking about pedagogy, and I wonder sort of, you know, a lot of this comes from fear, right? And, and fears of being closed in, fears of being limited. I mean, they're not completely unreasonable, given we came out of a COVID period where, you know, especially here in France, we were in lockdowns, limited to a kilometer radius from home. I mean, it's, it's not coming completely out of left field. Is there a certain understanding in your point of view and, and a like, how do you address those fears when, when people say, okay, the 15-minute city is going to keep me locked up in my neighborhood? Um, how do you talk to somebody like that who, who's hearing these theories and, and finding resonance in it? Yes, you're totally right. Today, we need to fight against fear. In reality, fear is a survival mechanism. And the question is not to have a fear of the future, but to transform our present. I think that the core of the current situation is a real difficulty for having a real acceptance of the gravity of our situation. 
You mean just like accepting that, okay, my daily preoccupations of autonomy in my car, etc., are maybe actually very minor compared to the gravity of the world situation. Totally. Because in reality, the fear is today, the emergence of this shield that the normality is to have a car, even for the short distances, that people different could be an enemy. The question of social exclusion and economical exclusion are today two leverages for continuing to develop this uh, collective fear. We need to develop a more um, collective resilience. For me, the key is to revitalize our proximity, to revitalize our neighborhood, to recreate the strong social and economical interactions in proximity. With the 15-minute city, with the 30-minute territory, we have proposed this term, a happy proximity. And we wanted to promote worldwide, in a planetary scale, this idea that this is a duty, this is compulsory to create a new economic geography. You're running up against skepticism. Do you see this in France? I mean, a lot of this has been happening outside of France, but do, is France maybe different? Do you see the ideas being picked up more here, maybe because there's a different culture and a different mindset? I, I think that in France, this is very particular context. On the one hand, the national government is a very centralized national government. Yeah, which seems to kind of go counter to small communities, the whole idea of the 15-minute city. Yeah, yes, certainly. This is one of the difficulties. And we have a real difficulty for recognizing the vitality of local communities, of local economies, for developing more vibrant local activities. You work obviously on policy levels and big picture and a little bit longer term levels, but sort of on an individual level when people are seeing this. And this is asking for a massive shift in how people have lived their lives for a very long time. And how do you deal with sort of translating the policy into sort of things that everybody understands? Yeah, it's hard. At the same time, I'm very optimistic because we have in a country as France, a strong diversity of human resources. I think that one of the harder problems is in, in our different cities, the difficulty for managing a positive integration of immigration. Third and second generation of immigration, it is today very complicated. This uh, difficulty for generating a more tolerant attitude has created a strong separation, the separation of communities, the outskirts, for example, the banlieue, this is a real risk. And we need to, to explore the absence of the local services, the absence of jobs. Hmm, yeah, the, the French banlieue do not seem like a good example of 15-minute cities at mm -mm. all because people living in these suburban areas have to travel a long way to get to work. Um, and even the, the services that they need day to day just aren't there on the doorstep. Yeah, I mean, we're talking medical deserts. We're talking just, you know, shopping is far away. Cultural activities are more in the center. So mm -hmm. absolutely, there's a lot of work to be done if that's where you're trying to go. And then the way France is structured with a strong central government leaving little decisions to cities as far as how they organize themselves and then 
a lack of this sort of metropolitan groupings of cities mm-hmm. and suburbs that you do see in other parts of the world, which would allow common visions of how they should be structured. It really makes the 15-minute city or really any urban planning idea have a lot of trouble taking hold on a larger scale. So there's a lot to work on in France, just in terms of governance. It's very technical, but already it makes it hard. And then addressing all these historical problems with the banlieue and lack of services. Um, So the 15-minute city may not be for tomorrow in France, which I guess for some of these conspiracy theorists is a good thing. Quand le soleil s'élevait là-bas derrière Pantin, ça n'a été qu'un cri dans le petit matin. Il fait beau. Les oiseaux de Paris filochent en ventre à ciel aux quatre coins de la ville ont porté la nouvelle. Il fait beau. And we've come to the end of Spotlight on France. This episode was mixed as usual by Cécile Pompeiani. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. It will help others find us too. Yeah, and you can write to us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France and on the web at rfienglish.com. We'll be back in two weeks, hopefully with Alison, on Thursday, September the 28th. Bye, Jess. Bye, bye. Le soleil pressé disparaît vers Saint-Cloud. Là, le tour du monde à faire, faut qu'il en mette un coup. Il fait doux, il fait doux. Il a pas de temps à perdre s'il veut être venu demain. On compte sur lui de bonne heure là-bas derrière Pontin. Il fera beau, il fera beau, il fera beau. Ça nous plaira bien.